The Westminster Confession of Faith was first published in 1646. It was the result of the hard work done by a group of men called the Westminster Divines. Their goal was to outline what they believed the Scriptures principally taught. And it has been said that the Church of Christ cannot be creedless and live. Thankfully, the Westminster Confession of Faith has been the creed of the Reformed Church for almost 400 years. This podcast seeks to point you to Christ, to help you navigate the Westminster Confession of Faith, and to see you understand what you believe and why you believe it. Welcome to This We Confess. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 19 of the Law of God, Paragraphs 1 to 5. God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works, by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling, and threatened death upon the breach of it and endued him with power and ability to keep it. Paragraph 2. This law, after his fall, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness, and as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai, in Ten Commandments, and written in two tablets. The first four commandments containing our duty towards God, and the other six, our duty to man. Paragraph 3. Beside this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church under age ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. Paragraph 4. To them also, as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. Paragraph 5. The moral law doth forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof and that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Neither doth Christ in the Gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. A few years ago I was leading a Bible study when the question came up, how were people saved in the Old Testament? I opened it up to the group to ascertain what the general consensus was, And several individuals came back with the idea that in the Old Testament, believers were saved by keeping the law. Whilst I was surprised at this response, it seemed like a reasonable suggestion to many others in the group. As after all, the Old Testament is all about law, and then when Jesus comes in the New, it's suddenly all about grace. So there must be two ways of salvation, one in keeping the law, and the other being saved by grace. Now, of course, those individuals in that Bible study had gone wrong. There are not two ways of salvation. 
If anyone has ever been saved, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this applies to Father Abraham all those years ago, as much as it does to an individual who will be saved this very day. But perhaps a better question would have been, what are we to do with the Old Testament? What are we to do with the law? If you've ever wondered about the answer to such questions, then today's chapter in the Westminster Confession speaks to this very issue. Chapter 19 is entitled, Of the Law of God, and speaks to the different types of laws in the Bible and their uses to this very day. But before the Westminster Divines deal with the distinctions between the laws that we find in the Bible, in paragraph 1 they take us back to the very beginning, where God gives to Adam a law as a covenant of works. We have discussed the covenant of works before in this podcast, and here the divines tell us that it is by this covenant of works that Adam and all his posterity were bound to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. We see in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16, The Lord God commanded Adam, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Here we see what was required. Adam was to obey God and not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If Adam obeyed this, then he would have enjoyed life eternal. But by breaking this covenant, then Adam and those after him would surely die. Now the Westminster Divines here do not fill in the blanks and tell us the outcome of this arrangement between the Lord and Adam. But you and I, through history and through our understanding of the scriptures, know all about it. Adam falls. He does not obey perfectly. He does not follow what God has required in the covenant of works. He falls into sin, and because of one man's sin, then death enters in, and in Adam all have sinned. But the Westminster Divines, whilst not filling in that blank, do tell us here that Adam was not hard done by. He was endued with the power and the ability to keep the covenant of works. Now you and I no longer have this ability to keep this covenant, but the first man, Adam, had that ability. And if Adam had have obeyed, and if Adam and his posterity had have continued keeping this covenant of works then they would receive this wonderful blessing of life everlasting. God would have walked with them every single day and there would have never been any such thing as death and sin in this world. We see the standard of that obedience in Romans chapter 10 and verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So Adam and his posterity were supposed to live by these commandments. But through the fall, humanity had lost this ability. We see in Galatians 3 and 10 to 12, the answer to the question, were Old Testament believers saved by works? Paul writes, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. And so in this brief discussion of the covenant of works, the Westminster Divines, as always, are incredibly helpful. The Lord gives Adam a law, 
establishing the covenant of works. And God's law is written on Adam's heart as we would read in Romans 2 and verse 15 as Paul speaks about the Gentiles. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So this law, this covenant of works, written on Adam's heart and he is given the ability to keep this law fully but falls, falls into sin and it is just as we read in Romans 5 and verse 12 Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And just before we continue I think it's important that we underline something here. God's law is not sin. It is good, it is perfect, it is right, it is a reflection of who he is. It outlines to us and shows us clearly his holiness and purity and character. And also as this paragraph shows us, God's law did not begin when it was given to Moses at Mount Sinai. The law has its origins in God and the law has its origins way before Moses and the Ten Commandments. But with that said, we now move into paragraph 2, where we see Moses and the Ten Commandments. We read that this law, after Adam's fall, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness and as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and written in two tablets. So we see here that whilst the law of God was written in the heart of Adam, here, later on in human history, the Lord in his grace writes it upon two tablets. And again, this law is good. It is, as James says in James 1 and verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And James continues in chapter 2 and verse 12, when he urges us to speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What we speak of here is God's moral law and it is this that is the first distinction that we would make when considering the law of God in the scriptures. God's moral law written on Adam's heart and written on tablets of stone at Mount Sinai today is still in place. The first four commandments we're told here by the Westminster Divines contain our duty towards God and the other six contain our duty to man. And we find the summary of these commandments in Matthew 22 and verse 37 to 40. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so this law was not given to the people at Mount Sinai to offer them a path of salvation. Again, we can't express this enough. No one could possibly ever be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. Our opportunity to keep the covenant of works was lost in the Garden of Eden as Adam fell before it. No, at Mount Sinai what was given was the codification of the law. The law was written down on tablets of stone. That which was already written in the hearts of sinful humanity was now written on a tablet of stone in their sight. So here they are not given a pathway to salvation, but God's law is republished in their sight and it is of much use in their lives. 
we will consider next time the ins and outs of how we are to use the law, but simply today to say that the law reveals what is pleasing to God. So as the people received this law written on tablets of stone at Mount Sinai, it wasn't for salvation's sake, but so that the people could walk before the Lord every single day in ways that would please and honour him. Here is the moral law of God. But the moral law did not stand alone. We read in paragraph 3, Beside this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel, as a church under age, ceremonial laws. I always find this statement very, very interesting. We're not used in this day and age to speak of the Old Testament believers as the church, but I do my very best to speak of them in this way as much as I can. I feel that by using this language, it helps us to avoid any notion that Abraham was saved in a different way from you or I. That would simply not be true. And the Westminster Divines here call the people of Israel a church under age. So in other words, the men and women of God, men and women of faith, the ecclesia, the gathering, were the church of Jesus Christ, even in these Old Testament times. And this church under age were also given, in addition to the moral law, ceremonial laws. And these laws contained several typical ordinances, partly of worship and partly holding diverse instructions of moral duties. And so as this church under age would gather to worship, they would see Jesus. He had not yet come, he had not yet taken on flesh, but as they worshipped they were given ordinances. And these ordinances prefigured Christ. They were certainly a shadow of what was to come. And so as the men and women drew near to worship, they would meet Jesus. They would learn of his graces, his actions, his sufferings and benefits. They would see him in the sin offering. They would see him in the Passover lamb. They would see him as blood was necessary to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. All of these ordinances prefigured Jesus and pointed these worshippers forward to the day that a saviour would come. A saviour whose blood would be sufficient and would not need to be offered year after year after year. And yes, at this stage, they could only see in part, but also at this stage, they were urged to put their faith in the one who was to come. They understood that the sacrifices that they offered year after year were not able to make perfect those who would draw near. We read that in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. The law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, Paul writes. And so with that being in mind, the men and women of faith in the church under age looked forward to the day that Christ Jesus would arrive. And so as we read of God's ceremonial law, primarily in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, what we see are laws given to the church under age to govern their worship and to govern their living, all pointing forward to Jesus, who was still to come. And thanks be to God, because Jesus has come. And so it is, as the Westminster Divines state at the end of paragraph 3, that these ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. No longer do we worship in type and in shadow. No longer do we have to look forward to the day that a Saviour comes to die in our place. Jesus has come. Jesus has died once and for all and stood again on this earth. 
his sacrifice is never to be repeated. And it is, as Paul says in Ephesians 2 and 15 to 16, Christ has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both, that is, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And so we have met the moral law, written on Adam's heart and written on tablets of stone at Mount Sinai, and to the ceremonial law given to a church under age to point them forward to Christ. But also, finally, we discuss the civic law, as do the Westminster Divines in paragraph 4. They write, to them also, that is, this church under age, the people of Israel, to them also, as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now, further than the general equity thereof may require. This church under age was organised as a people, a nation, a land, and so they were this body politic. And so the Lord gave them judicial laws to govern themselves, standards that were to be upheld in the nation. Again, these are no longer in force. The land that was set up in the Old Testament has gone. Many would argue that there is a nation today called Israel, and that is absolutely true. But it is not the one that we meet in the Old Testament. They no longer have a king. Their temple is not in operation. Things have changed dramatically because of history and most of all because of Jesus. These laws have gone. However, we are still under the laws of the land in which we live in. It is as Peter writes in 1 Peter 2 and 13 to 14, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So the ceremonial law has gone, as has the civic law. But there is an ongoing obligation on believers, and indeed all men, to obey the moral law. In paragraph 5 we are told that the moral law doth forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof. Every single person under the blue sky today of this earth has an obligation upon them to obey the moral law of God. We've already stated that this moral law is written on everybody's hearts. The nature of the church of Jesus Christ has changed, so today there is no need for the ceremonial or civic law. Christ has come and fulfilled the law completely, so again there is no need for the ceremonial or the civic law. But God's moral law is still in force, and you and I are still bound by it. We are still to love our neighbour and look out for his good. We are still to honour our parents. We are still to flee from lust and the desire to covet that which belongs to our neighbour and theft. We obey the moral law in regard of the matter, but also, as the divines say, in respect of the authority of God, the Creator, who gave it. At the beginning of this podcast, we made it clear that the law shows us what our God is like. The law is good because it is from God. It is perfect. It is the royal law. And so today we are still obligated to keep this moral law in obedience of our God. We love him and we follow him, for it is as we read in 1 John chapter 2. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. 
Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected, and by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Nowhere in the gospel did Jesus dissolve or lessen this obligation, but rather he strengthened it in every way. We are to keep the moral law, not as another path of salvation, not to somehow win God's favour or get into his good books, but because he has loved us, because he has saved us, because he has redeemed our lives from the pit, we respond to him by loving and keeping his commandments. And so the next time that you are challenged as a believer about why you wear mixed fibres, or indeed why you are enjoying lobster for your dinner, you can tell the individual who is questioning you that the civic and the ceremonial law has passed away. And the next time that you strive to keep the moral law of God, but fall flat on your face, you can delight yourself in running to Jesus, who kept the law fully and perfectly on our behalf. It is as we read in Psalm 119, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. I am thankful today that through faith in Christ, we are counted in this number, not because of my righteousness, but because of the passive and active obedience of my Saviour. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. And to this I cry, Amen. As always, here are some questions for you to consider. Question 1. Outline your understanding of the covenant of works and the blessings and the curses attached to it. Question 2. True or false? The law of God began at Mount Sinai. Give reasons for your answer. Question 3. Could an Old Testament believer be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments? Question 4. What is the purpose of the civic and ceremonial law and why are they no longer in effect? And question 5. Why should a believer strive to keep God's moral law? That's all for today. As always, my name is Scott Woodburn and until next time, this we confess. (laughs) 